Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I'm so, so grateful for all of you all, everyone who supported, everyone who's downloaded, everyone who shared with a friend or emailed me or talked to me about an episode. Thank you so much. Today's episode is special because I talked to my brother and good friend and co-founder of Campaign Zero, DeRay McKesson. But before we get to DeRay, I wanted to talk about this COVID vaccine, particularly vaccine hesitancy and black folk. I think we're all familiar with black folks and our mortality rates in COVID, but here's a reminder. Compared to whites, black Americans are 1.4 times more likely to contract COVID, 3.7 times more likely to be hospitalized, and 2.8 times more likely to die. Along with Latinos, our mortality rates compared to whites are the highest. And so, For a host of reasons that we've discussed here on this show before, because we over-index in essential jobs, over-index in dense housing communities, and over-index in intergenerational household, the valiance of COVID in our communities is stronger. So it stands to reason that an effective vaccine would disproportionately benefit Black folks. And that brings me to a recent Pew survey that has me concerned. Based on a national survey of Americans, only 42% of Black Americans said they would get the vaccine, compared to other groups, 83% of Asian Americans who would get it, 75% of Americans over 65 would get it, 63% of Latinos would get it, 61% of white Americans would get it, and even 50% of Republicans would get it. Black Americans were last with 42%. Look, I get it. The history of racism in this country is real, and I talk about it a lot. Disparities in access and quality of care, black maternal health, conscious and unconscious bias, and flashpoints in our history like the Tuskegee experiment are very real in the minds of black Americans. And there are long time and legitimate questions to ask about a new vaccine or any new vaccine for a novel virus like COVID, given how quickly it developed. And given that it was developed and will be distributed possibly by a Trump administration, It all compounds legitimate concerns that we all have. I wholeheartedly get it. But here's what we know. The global effort to develop this vaccine is bigger than Trump, and scientists from around the globe are aligned on the safety and efficacy of the major vaccine candidates in the U.S. that have cleared phase three trials. They're all well over 90% effective, And the first round of vaccines in 2021 will be free. While, like you, I wondered how representative the trials were of people of color and particularly black folk, the black physicians and scientists that I trust are all saying the same things. The benefit to black folks for the vaccine far outweigh the cost of any potential side effects. And the toll that COVID has taken on black America is far too significant for us to approach the COVID vaccine like just any other vaccine. And at the end of the day, when was the last time you saw someone with rubella, measles, mumps, or even chickenpox? Imagine if we could talk about COVID the same way we talk about polio. We don't talk about polio and vaccines are the reasons why. We'll do our job here on this show to give you the best information we can on the COVID vaccine, but I'd encourage everyone to seek out verifiable incredible sources on the vaccine. Talk to doctors and medical professionals you trust about the vaccine and encourage your family members to get vaccinated when the vaccine becomes available. 
And that's that on that. Now on to my show with my brother, D-Ray McKesson. Welcome to one of my very, very good friends. You see him on the screen, DeRay McKesson. What's going on, my brother? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it is a little rainy today, but uh, but but I'm good. Yeah, man. Look, thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. We always start with asking one simple question. We ask all our guests to walk us through the arc of their career. And you started off in education and then transitioned into social justice work. Talk us through your first job in the classroom to the work you're doing now with Campaign Zero. Yeah, so some of the first work I ever did was as an organizer as a, as a teenager. Uh, but after college, I taught sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn, which is incredible. I taught 12-ish years ago. The students I taught are now 23 or so, which is, that feels nuts. Uh, yeah. but, but sixth grade math is really cool. Me and my sister, my sister's name is Ture. We're not twins. We just are black with rhyming names. Uh, she was a middle school math teacher too. I taught sixth grade math. She taught eighth grade math. Uh, so sixth grade math was really cool. And then I helped lead the largest community center in Harlem Children's Zone. So I did that at 145th and Douglas, which was great. I went back home to Baltimore, opened up an after-school center on the west side of the city uh, that still exists today. So I opened it a decade ago and it's still, it's still great. They're still dope. Uh, and then I transitioned to train and support a third of all the new teachers in the city of Baltimore. I did that for two years, worked in the school system in human capital. I did that for a couple of years and then went to Minneapolis as the senior director of Human Capital. You know, Human Capital is sort of my expertise in in school systems. And then Mike Brown got killed. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for the weekend. I'm going to like go. I don't know what's going on. Mike Brown got killed August 9th, August 16th. uh, I ended up um, in St. Louis and I was like, I'm just going to like figure out what's going on for the weekend. And then I got tear gas the second night I was in St. Louis and that changed. Uh, my life. So, so much of my work now is focused on police. I did do a brief stint back in the school system to help out the school system in Baltimore. I was a chief aim in capital a couple of years ago, three years ago, I guess now, two years ago, when I was 16. Uh, it was you had a whole hell of a lot of jobs, boy. I did. So I did that. And then I left to go back to police. So police is what I do, uh, but education is will always be where my heart is. Tell everybody about the Harlem, Harlem children's zone. That That's a dope that's a dope project. A lot of people who are listening have no idea. They, they may have heard about it in Fleeting, but what? tell about the good work they did. Yeah, so Jeff Canada started it, but I went to Bowdoin. Jeff's a Bowdoin alum. Uh, what's cool about it is that they have almost 20 sites that span like 90 blocks. You know, it's sort of an incredible reach in Harlem. Uh, and the center I worked at was the largest center of all of the centers. And it was, we serve 500 kids a day, which is a, I don't know if you've ever been in, an after-school program, but 500 kids a day is a lot of oh, kids. Yeah, yeah. It's K to 12, like that's bigger than some schools. Uh, so the commitment to young people that the zone carries is pretty incredible and their families. And what's cool about it is that the programming is from sort of like birth to, to college. So they have a baby college where they teach expectant parents how to be good parents. And once you become a zone family, you sort of can participate for the life cycle of childhood and into adulthood. So so cool program, big model. You know, some of the some of the population density of Harlem or New York just lends itself to programs like this in ways that cities have tried to replicate. It's a little hard in some places, but but the idea of promised neighborhoods uh, came sort of from uh, yeah. our children's zone. Talk to me about uh, Campaign Zero for our listeners who've never heard of it. Tell me what it is. 
Yeah, so we started because we were like, you know, Mike Brown got killed and we looked up and we were like, okay, we know that there's a problem. How do we fix it? And then we realized like, we actually just don't know a lot about the problem. We know the police are killing people, but Bakari, you remember in 2014, people were like, that's a problem in Ferguson. They were not like, that's a problem in America. Like we were like, forget white people, black people were like, you know, don't be dramatic about this. So we started Campaign Zero for two reasons. One is that we believe we can get to zero and we believe we can get to zero in this lifetime. And the second is that we sort of believe that structures and systems are the only way to get there. So, you know, in 2014, there was no good data about police killings. So we started this thing called Mapping Police Violence. That's the most comprehensive database. So police kill about 1,100 people a year. The highest number of convictions for killings by police ever in a given year is 11, which is wild. Uh, and so we track a host of things. We do a lot of analysis to help people understand the problem. You might not know that the police actually kill more people in suburban communities and almost all other communities combined. It's actually not cities. People think that it's cities. Like if you look at the news, you would think it was New York and LA. But Kenosha is much more representative. Ferguson, the suburbs, actually much more representative of the problem. Or places like Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, one in three homicides a couple of years ago was committed by a police officer. In Phoenix, one in five homicides was committed. Like that's wild, right? So we do that's a lot insane, of analysis, yeah. uh, but we importantly focus on solutions. So we're like, we can win. We can win in this lifetime. Let us figure out how to win. So we did a can't wait, which was which was use of force. We have this thing called Nix to Six, which is pollution contracts. We just rolled out a campaign about ending uh, no-knock raids. So we try to do these like discrete solution-based projects that can scale across the country. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question about supporting Campaign Zero later, but I want to drill down and kind of into this recent controversy that we've had around defund the police. And I want to table set. There seem to be a few different schools of thought around the future of policing in this country. And um, it's possible for people to subscribe to more than one group. So let's describe each of them for our listeners. Police abolitionists, who are they and what do they want? Yeah, I think that, you know, let's zoom out and remember that the idea of abolition is not new to any of us. That the end of slavery is sort of like one of the best abolition stories that we all know. So I think that there are a set of people, and I would consider myself one of them, who believe we can live in a world uh, beyond policing, right? Where we think about safety not inherently linked to people with guns showing up. I don't think that's like a wild idea. I think that's sort of a basic you notion. fucking communist Marxist. <laughs> we can get there. Um, I, think the, I think some of the language for people is like a lot, but, uh, but the idea is not really wild. Uh, the defund movement, what do they want and where have they, uh, where have we seen them be successful? I think that uh, defund is, is a shorthand for we should move resources and money away from things that hurt us to things that heal us. I think that that is also sort of not a, a wild notion. Uh, it's also sort of rooted in this understanding that like experts should do what experts do. So who should respond to a mental health crisis? Probably an expert on mental health, right? Like that <laughs> doesn't seem like a sort of wild thing. Uh, I think that I think that this it's you know it's interesting to have a conversation about budgets in the middle of perhaps one of the wildest fiscal moments uh, in U.S. history because of the pandemic. So you know there have been some police departments that have cut. Austin is probably like I think the best case study because the way they did the cuts to the police department budget were just uh, you know just really progressive, really thoughtful, big cuts. Uh, I'm also mindful that cutting the police department budget without also reducing the power of the police or without reducing the number of police, you know, 
questionable whether that will impact the violence of the police and communities. Now, it will be good because we will invest in alternatives or we'll like get, put money other places. Uh, but it's also mindful that moving the money just isn't enough as a strategy, right? None of these strategies alone are enough. So in most cities, especially cities of Black people, we don't have enough scalable alternatives to the police to transition wholly today, which is not a knock on the alternatives. And that is certainly not a justification of the police. It is a reminder that like taking the money from policing and just putting it to other white led alternatives that also harm people, but just aren't the police is not a win either. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The reform movement, they acknowledge that police should still exist, but policing should undergo significant reforms. What do those uh, reforms look like? Yeah, so I think that like this is this is where I'd say a lot of, you know, I we work with 30 plus communities uh, every day on policing and stuff and so forth. I think that there are a lot of people who really do understand policing as like key to their safety. Like they and they, they love black and it's, people. A, and it's and it's a it's almost generational as well, especially yeah. in black communities. I don't even know if it's generational. I know a lot of young people who are like, yeah. ah, you know, I, I had somebody in the Bronx say to me the other day, he was like a black guy who like is down for the cause. He was like, DeRay, the police are referees in my neighborhood. So he's like, you remove the referee and it is chaos, right? So he's like, and he, he hates policing, but he's also like, if we don't figure out how to like deal with what happens when they disappear in this moment, like I'm not voting for that option today, not because I love the police, but because I love my community enough not to sort of be a Pollyanna about it, right? So like, I think that there's a mix of people on the range. What's interesting, when we poll people across the board, people are like, they like the police. Like the police did not take a hit in the protest. They didn't. The protesters just are more popular than we've ever been. Correct. But when we ask people all the discrete things, people agree. They're like, should we restrict their power? Like no bot, no chokeholds, no shooting and moving vehicles. They're like, yes. Should we move the money? People are like, yes. Should we transition away from police responding to 911 calls? Or that people, like all the discrete things, people are like, they're actually with us on it. They still sort of generally like the police. This is why, Bakari, I would say that I don't think the question is police or no police. Like, I think that frame, I think there's just too much police propaganda out there for that. I think the question actually starts from two core beliefs. One is that we'll fix all the stuff and there will still be conflict between people. And right. some of that conflict will result in harm. The question becomes who intervenes in the conflict, who responds to the harm? The police are the easiest, simplest, and laziest answer to those questions, not the best. And like the cool thing is that you, you know, you're a parent, you have kids of, of ranges, right? You have like babies, you have older kids. Is that like, you know that the response to all conflict is not somebody with a gun. That's not even like a wild notion, right? Like imagine if every time one of your kids is something crazy, you like call them somebody with a gun. You're like, that's a bad response. You know what I mean? Like we actually already can think of responses to conflict or harm that are not people with guns. I think that we are just saying we should scale that understanding that the best response to all conflict and harm is not somebody with a gun. And I don't think that's actually like a wild idea. You, you said you, on the spectrum, you said you fall in the category of abolitionists. Talk to me about what they did in Camden, because I believe in Camden, New Jersey, didn't they abolish their police department versus what they attempted to do in Minneapolis? Minneapolis, you're so funny. Many, many, I'm from the South. Many, and they get on me about that all the time on, on CNN. How you pronounce it again? How you say it again? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Not like Minneapolis. Indianapolis is not Minneapolis. Uh, so Minneapolis. Okay, so I got I, you. 
<laughs> I don't really know. So I think there's like a path to abolition or like there's a police departments aren't going to disappear tomorrow. And that's not a concession. That's not like a, a lack of belief. That is an understanding that like we have to help communities get there and we have to build the alternatives while we while we sort of get to the end. We can also reduce the power of the police today and we can shrink the role of the police today like those things we can do right now. Now, Camden, I'm not convinced Camden as much as a success story as people believe, just like um, just like in Compton. Do you remember the officer, the sheriff's department killed the guy who was killed a black man who was riding his bike? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So that police department got dissolved as well. Camden got dissolved and they just got replaced with other police departments, right? So when the one in Compton got dissolved, I think they got replaced with the sheriff's, now the sheriff's police that area, it's just not the police department, which is like, in that case, this didn't turn out to be better than the police department, right? Mm-hmm. Camden, it's just a different police department. So it's not the, it's not a local police department. It is a, it's a more regional county. One. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, so it's not, so that wasn't like the end of the police. Uh, it just was not those police, right? And when you think about Minneapolis, you know, there was a call to disband and then, you know, that there were people in community who were like, I still want the police, right? And like, I think the New York Times actually did a very good write-up about it, about sort of the tension and about the sort of the nuts and bolts and like what it looks like. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I'm never focusing on white people. I think that we have a lot more work to do with Black people to help them understand like the intervention and conflict and harm that is not people with guns. You know, I think that people truly like, you know, I think we got to build up the alternatives. I think we got to do it. You know, I'm interested even with like alternatives to 911 is that, you know, we're looking at some places where you put mental health providers to respond to crises and they are disproportionately putting black people in involuntary holds. And you're like, well, that's not better than jail, right? Like involuntary hold with involuntary medicine is like bad too, right? That's like as bad as jail is. So uh, trying to be really thoughtful about how we scale the alternatives to the police because I think the consensus is like, you know, I think people get like some of the gun responding to like a car accident doesn't make sense or like missing kids or like a whole host of things. And we look at the national data, only 5% of arrests that the police make are for violent crime. And that's FBI number. That's been true for 20 years. So it's just, it's actually not as like the police aren't doing like bank robberies all day, you know? <laughs> so you, you kind of had a natural segue there. I know you're familiar with the recent controversy around defunding the police from President Obama's statements this past week to Congressman Clyburn's view that defund the police caused electoral losses for the Senate and congressional Democrats this cycle. As a general matter, what do you make of what appears to be conflict amongst Democrats around the phrase defund? I think I will just zoom out and say that I think the media is sort of making this a moment. Uh, and I and I worry that like there's a stoking of the flame about this sort of like conflict. I also think that like a lot of people can be right in here. I think that in New York City, the idea of defund, like the just even the language is more palatable to some people. I know some some community members are working with in places like Virginia or even where I live in Baltimore, where people are like, ah, I don't really know about the like they just are skeptical, right? Like they're like not sold on it yet. And they've heard all the arguments. They've heard like the police don't stop rape now. They've heard the police like, and they still are like not sold on an alternative, right? And I think I think that it is weird to me that people talk about black people not being a monolith and at the same time are sort of suggesting that if all black people don't understand one phrase in the same way, then they don't care about black people. I think that's like a dangerous way to do this work. 
I think that there are people, I think that the phrase sort of resonates with people differently. I think the idea though is where I'm interested. And the idea is that we put too much money in police and not enough money and a lot of other things and that we should shift the money. I actually think there's like broad consensus on the left that that's true. The question becomes like, how do we do it? How quickly and to what end? I think that's actually where people get a little, there's a little disagreement. But I think that the core idea people, um, people sort of agree with, and I would say as an organizer, part of my work is a reminder that like, a part of our collective work is to remember not to be so arrogant to believe that the only way to enter is the way we enter, right? Yeah. Like the only way to enter is the way I enter. I can enter some, I can enter from like defund. I can enter from like, we can live in a world without the police. Sometimes my aunt can't, right? And that doesn't mean that my aunt doesn't believe in black people. She, I got to find like a different way for her to get into the conversation. And once she's in it, then I'm like, oh, da, 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 da. So like, you know, that's actually the, the cool, the hard, the challenging part of organizing is to like find the best entrance for people without compromising on the idea. So I think Congressman Clyburn's comments were just kind of flat out wrong. I, I think that defund is not the reason that we lost races. I think that we people like to use that as a scapegoat to hide the fact that we ran some shitty outdated campaigns. And we've done that for a very long period of time. But you and I both have a relationship with uh, the 44th president of the United States. Unpack his statements for me. Tell me what you think about the statements he made, what he was trying to say. I'm sure you watched the entire interview and you've spoken to him about this. So talk about his efforts on this and how you feel. Uh, it got real messy on Twitter in response to him, but unpack what he was saying and uh, what do you think he was trying to say? I honestly can tell you I did not watch the whole interview. I saw clips of it, partly because I'm exhausted about like fighting about a phrase. I'm like, what is, like, there's so much work to do that like. So I'm let like, me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Just humbly speaking, if you're advising me on a future campaign, what's my messaging around policing that builds coalitions, that gets to the heart of the message, that talks about a progressive future that gets us where we need to be. If, if you were advising Democratic candidates, what would you tell them their messaging should be? Whew, that's a good question. I would say, um, I would say that we, we do not spend enough money on uh, the things that help community and we should spend more money on those things. I think that message resonates with a lot of people. Of I also think this message of we, we spend too much money on the carceral state, like on incarceration writ large, understanding the police is a part of that. I think that message like works for broad communities. I also think there's like broad consensus that the police should not kill people and that we should not allow the police to kill people and we should hold them accountable. I think that message works. Uh, and I also think that uh, for too long, we have protected the police from accountability as they cause harm in community. I think that that message is is true. I think that the I think that those four together seem to me like a strong sort of way to talk about this. Uh, I think that once you win, then you get in and you're like, "Hey, we got cut the budget. We got do this." Like then I think it's like a different conversation. But I am interested. You know, I've been in a lot of rooms where like you know we talk about some of this, and there are some places where defund is like absolutely the best language for people, and there's some places where like reallocation is the best language. There's some places where the budget isn't even like a motivator for people, where like what they want is like accountability and justice. Like that is like the framing that they think about it. So I do think the message sort of changes. I also think that you know the violence of the police is so different in so many communities. So some places have been, like in Baltimore where you know, this will be our sixth year at 300 murders mm -hmm. and the police are a nightmare, that the message is a little complicated, right? Because there are people who are nervous about 
what happens if the police scale back? And they also are nervous about the presence of the police, right? Like they are, they're like nervous about all of it. Um, but I think that the thing that everybody agrees on is like, they got too much power, they have too much money and the schools don't have any money. And like, no, there's no check on them at all. And I think that those things are like, I think they work. I don't think they're controversial. I think they're hard hitting. I think they create space to do all of the actual things that really matter. And I think you're right about Clyburn. I don't think that defund is why people lost. I do think that the GOP are like great fear mongers and yeah, everything yeah. we do become like, you know, that Trump ad when like you call 911 and nobody answers. And like, I think that the fear monger around this stuff, I also think that Trump did a good job of not even fighting Biden, but seeding this idea that the Democrats like don't care about black people and don't care about justice. And, and, and I think that like, that resonated more than we are being honest about, especially amongst black men. Like, you know, I think about some of the focus groups we saw uh, that we worked with pollsters on were like, you know, people were like, it was interesting. It was this idea that like Trump's racism actually isn't disqualifying. And we were like, what? And they were like, cause we think all the white people are racist. And, that, like, and that's what I was about to say, you know, when you look at the polling and, and especially with Hispanic subgroups, and I talked about this with Mark Caputo on my last show, you know, when you Hispanic voters come from the premise that uh, Democrats and Republicans both are racist. Yeah. And, and they're like, so, all right, what else? Who's going to help me talk about these? And that, you know, for, for us, we kept hammering, hammering, hammering Trump on the xenophobia, on the bigotry, racism, because it was just so pronounced and so disgusting to us. And they were like, nah, well, at least Trump's talking about the economy. That's why you saw him pick up. And I believe 73 of the 100 largest uh, Hispanic communities in the country or counties in the country, his vote percentage actually raised from 2016. So that's a fascinating observation. I want to, I know you're busy. Before we, before I let you escape, I want to get back to campaign zero because the work that you're doing is fascinating. You're doing some work uh, across a series of campaigns and I want you to walk listeners through each of the campaign zero campaigns, but let's first talk about your end all no knock campaign and why that's necessary. Yeah, before I do that, let me go back to the question you asked about, like, what would I tell you if you were running? I think that what's true across the board is that the Republicans defend the police because the police defend them and sort of like share ideology. I think the Democrats are actually just afraid of addressing the police thing head on. Like they sort of address everything around policing, but like don't address the police. And I think that like if there were Democratic candidates who just said as like declarative statements I'm not afraid of challenging the power of the police. Like, I don't know, I can't even name five people I've seen say that out loud. I know people who've said that privately, but like people who've said that like out loud, because I'm telling you, Bakari, we're in a lot of cities where like people are, the Dems are just like afraid of basic stuff. You're like, I think that the police shouldn't be able to like rape people in custody. And they're like, mm, I don't really know if I can introduce a bill on that. And you're like, you're like, if we can't get you to say that out loud, we are screwed. You but know? I mean, even our own, I mean, you and I have friends and I won't call them out um, because they are friends. I, I want to say it to their face first before I call them out on my show. But we have friends who are elected officials now who even just recently got elected, but they rather challenge Barack Obama on Twitter than actually do the work. And I think that is, you know, the work is very difficult. I mean, if you're in the United States Congress, the change is going to move slowly, but you can use your bully pulpit back home to actually defund the police where those local issues actually matter. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, I know a lot. I'm telling you, like, I think about New York City is, a, is such a fascinating place because the city charter in New York gives the police commissioner 
the sole power to discipline all 36,000 officers. That is wild, right? It's That's insane. Of, as you That's can imagine, insane. nobody gets... So I'm like, I want more people talking about that. Like, I want people beating de Blasio over the head and the council. And like, it's those sort of things that structurally at that chain. Could you imagine if the CCRB just started firing people? It'd be a different day in New York City, right? If they just, if another group of people, not just the police commissioner could terminate officers, it'd be a big deal, right? Or you think about in California, in California, the law says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline. That is why you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Who's yelling? Or like in LA, I don't know if you knew this in LA, the police commissioner cannot fire any officer. He has to go through the board of rights, which is there are two panels. And either is a panel of two police officers and one civilian. That's a bad group. Or it's three civilians, which you might think are better, but the civilians are appointed by the police commission. And they're like lawyers who actually more often rule in favor of the police. And like, they're not like, they're not community members. Like you think. So like, that is a bad, like, you know, that's a bad system, you know? So, so when I think about the structural issues, you're like, you know, I would rather people stop, you know, I'm not convinced people understand qualified immunity because every time I oh, hear I, people, don't even get me started on that. I mean, that, that like, is that. Yeah. People are like, officers are going to get fired. And you're like, qualified immunity is about civil cases, everybody, civil, civil, these are civil suits. So even when we end qualified immunity, officers will not get fired. The cities will pay settlements. That is a good thing. But like the officer will still be fine. It's a deterrent. It's the number one deterrent we have that we can't use. Talk about no not warrants. <laughs> I don't know if it's a deterrent. I mean, it's, it's a good thing that we end uh, qualified immunity. So no knock. So, you know, most people know no knocks because Brianna got killed. Uh, Brianna Taylor got killed with the no knock raid uh, in Louisville. So here's the rub. We we went and talked to their set of leading scholars on no knocks, a small set. One of the most important is Pete Kraska. His his research is the similar research on this. We talked to him and, and a host of other people over the last six or seven weeks. And we realized that banning no knock warrants actually isn't enough. It just won't ban no knock raids like that. Just it won't do it. Because there are two types of warrants. There's a no-knock warrant, and then there's a thing called a knock-and-announce. And a knock-and-announce is sort of a basic warrant. It's like what you think of when you see the news, and it's like, Bakari, we're at your front door. We have a warrant for your arrest. Please open the door. Now, banning no-knock warrants is good. Like, we should do that. But a knock-and-announce warrant, like a regular search warrant, can actually turn into a no-knock warrant at the moment of entry. So this is interesting because Brianna Taylor's case is a good example. They got a no-knock warrant, but what they said, they were like, we didn't even execute it as a no-knock. We executed it as a basic warrant. And what you saw is that that basic warrant was really a no-knock raid in the end. So what we did at endallnonocks.org is that we worked to, to build a rubric and a framework so that you not only ban no-knock warrants, but you actually restrict the execution of all search warrants so they can't turn into something else. So there are 37 states and cities that are working on uh, legislation right now around this. New York uh, is slated to be the most progressive. Uh, so, you know, you should go there. You should check and see if your city is working on legislation. If not, you should get them to introduce something. We'd love to work with them about it. Um, and you can have, we have another map of case studies to show a no-knock rate close to you. Like this is not a problem unique to Kentucky or unique to, you know, a New York City. Uh, these are happening all across the country today. What are the law enforcement officers' Bill of Rights and how is your Nix the Six campaign working to repeal them? Yeah, so there are 20 states that have officer Bill of Rights, uh, which are state level protections for the police. So, you know, Maryland has the oldest one. And Maryland, for instance, uh, 
you know, the only disciplinary panel for police officers is majority police officers. And that is encoded in state law or like in Maryland, you officers get a five day waiting period before they can be interrogated after they kill. And that is because of the officer bill of rights. It's the first in the country. It is the oldest and it's still in the books. None of these 20 laws have ever been repealed. They're technically 21. Wisconsin has one, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but there are 20 that are pretty bad. Georgia, interestingly, passed an officer bill of rights after they kill Rayshard Brooks. Like during the protests, they like draft, wrote and passed an officer bill of rights in the state of Georgia, which is you know, wild. And then next to six, we have, we have the only database of police union contracts in the country. So 700 contracts coded so that you can go and look and see what your contract looks like in a given city. Uh, and this is important to the concept of moving the money away from policing because 80% of police department budgets is people. So if in the contracts sort of manage what happens with personnel, like layoffs or salaries, all that stuff. So if you don't actually deal with the contracts, you'll never actually move enough money away from policing for it to matter. So before I let you get out of here, one of my last questions for you is I want to shift to Washington, D.C. And a lot of the work you do focuses rightly on state and local policy, because that's where the vast majority of criminal justice reform operates. And that's where the reform needs to happen. But what was your opinion on the Justice and Policing Act and how should this next Congress strengthen it? Yeah, so the Justice and Policing Act is good. It's a good piece of federal legislation. Uh, I think that it is, the qualified immunity piece is one of the strongest. I think that the ban on no-knocks is, is a good start, not the most comprehensive. Remember, the, the biggest challenge with the, with the Justice and Policing Act today is that there are some carve-outs. So yeah. the version that has like the, the database, there's gonna be like the database of police officers that gets checked is that it'll require police departments to check them, but if the officer, if, if the information comes back bad, right? So say the officer did get fired somewhere else or whatever, the department can do whatever they want. So you're like, I don't really know if it's a big win to like check the database and not be forced to use the data to make a decision. So there's those sort of carve outs, but overall the bill is great. Here's the challenge though, is that there are 18,000 police departments in the United States. Almost all of it is local. So the federal government can create like some good frameworks at the federal level, but like this, the, the terror of the police is actually like you're a mayor, you're a legislature, you're a governor, exactly. you're city council. So the, the, I worry that the federal government becomes this like salve for people and like outside of conditioning federal funds to, to police departments, it doesn't really, the federal government's not a big player outside of like ICE and Border Patrol and the FBI. Only 3% of like police department budgets come from the federal government. So it's just not a, not a same thing with mass incarceration. 2. Yeah, 3. 2. 2, we have 2.2 million people incarcerated. Only 200,000 are in federal prisons. 200,000 in federal prison. And in federal prison, half of those people are actually there for drugs. So like the conversation about drugs is a real one in federal prison. It's not the same thing in state and local. You can free everybody with drugs in state and local and you just won't, it won't make a big dent. And, I mean, it's a good thing, but it won't like change the calculus. Like we, for state and local, we actually will have to deal with what people consider to be violence, right? Like assault, carjacking, like whatever, theft. Um, so there are a lot of cool things coming down the pike. Even, do you know, where, where do you live again? I'm in Charlotte right now. Charlotte, Moving to Columbia, South Carolina. Moving to South Carolina. Um, the felony theft, how much, how much do you have to steal to be considered a felon? In New Jersey, it is $200. The amount in was- spent. I think in South Carolina, it's 1000 if I'm oh, yeah. not mistaken. In New Jersey, it's $200. Uh, the lowest in the United States. It was set in 1978. Even $1,000 is low. Like, imagine all the collateral consequences of being considered a felon. Right. Do you a know one of the things, one of the things I want to add to your plate 
is while we're reforming drug crime laws in a lot of states, uh, simple possession of marijuana, that's less than an ounce. That's a sugar packet of weed. You can actually lose your driving privileges when you get arrested for that misdemeanor. So it starts a cycle. You get pulled over, you get arrested for some possession, and then you lose your license. You still got to go to work. Then you get a DU, you get a driving under suspension, you know, and then your driving record's all fucked up. So it's cyclical. My last question for you is, uh, when our good friend MVP, Madam Vice President, calls you and asks you for your advice, which I know she will, what are some executive actions you think that they can take? And also this new attorney general, whomever it may be, whether or not it's Doug Jones or Sally Yates or Tom Perez or Javier Becerra or Tony West or Jay Johnson, whomever it may be, or Deval Patrick, what are some of the things that they can do right off bat without Congress? So we had a great conversation with, uh, with uh, Kamala Harris when she was running for president and she you know, she, we, we challenged her on some of the things that we thought were confusing about her record. She had great answers for all of them. She, she understood the issues obviously really well because of, of her, her, her history. Uh, you know, one of the things that we said to her is a reminder that the federal government only has the capacity today to intervene in three police departments a year, which is nuts, right? Like people think the DOJ is out there like doing a whole lot of police departments. They do three a year. There are 18,000 police departments. So like we would love a trigger so that like the federal government intervened in the top 10 top 10 percent of police departments that kill people or top 15 like three is just not enough so like they could do that would love for the doj i mean the department of education to condition funding or like withhold funding from uh, cities that disproportionately suspend or incarcerate like kids you know so there are a lot of like 10 to 12 year olds that actually get incarcerated in a given year because of school policing and like that is wild and the federal government could do some really aggressive things to just like disincentivize that, which could be uh, really powerful. The Justice and Policing Act will have a national, uh, like a use of force standard at the national level, which would be amazing. And a database for misconduct of bad officers. That's really what we need. Yeah, the database thing, you know, they could strengthen the database by making you actually have to do something with the data. Right now the database- No, you got the stick of federal funding, right? Yeah, you got, so the federal government will make people use the database, but say I look up your name and it's like, Bakari was a bad officer, got fired. I can still hire you. Like the law won't stop me from hiring. Oh, I got you. It's sort of like a weird thing. Um, at the end of no knocks is good. I think that there are going to be some good things. I, I don't want to put too much pressure on the federal government around policing and mass incarceration uh, because the rub is really state and local. So they can do some good symbolic things. They can do some good framework things and they can definitely model the changes with all the federal agencies like ICE, you know, we could just like get rid of ICE tomorrow. We could dramatically restrict the power of like the ATF, the DEA to do task force raids. Like they could end all that stuff. Like with the stroke of a pen. We just, we just, uh, we just found it ICE in 2002, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. ICE is new. You know, this is ICE. ICE detains about 60,000 people a day. And what's interesting is that ICE actually doesn't own enough property to detain that many people. I mean, insert the cages. Uh, but it requires like without sheriffs, the people who run local jails, ICE wouldn't function, but they had, they, up until recently, actually, because I don't know if you knew this up until recently, the law mandated a set level of beds for ICE. Like ICE had to maintain 30,000 beds, which was nuts. So we were trying to get people out of ICE and the federal government was like the law. Nah, says it, we got it. We got to put it in. Yeah. So that got taken out. Thank God recently. Um, but it didn't matter for Trump. Trump has far exceeded that. So last question, tell me about Campaign Zero. How can people support you? I know a lot of people are going to want to go to the site. What should they do? How can people support you and all the great work 
you're one of the most dynamic, brilliant, bright people. I think people see you and 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 have you have that celebrity status and that je ne sais quoi, as they say. But you also work extremely hard and you're very brilliant at what you do. And I want people to support your work. How can they do that? I appreciate it. You know, I'm proud to be a part of a, a great team. Uh, so joincampaignzero.org is the site and it's where, where you can go to see the work we do or see the research around policing in the United States uh, to help shape the way you probably think about it. Hopefully you can go to endallnonox.org, which is our most recent campaign. Or if you care about policing unions, you can go to nixthesix.org and see, see those. And if you have any ideas about what we should be working on next, please let us know. Uh, there's a lot to, a lot to chew on. We sort of specifically focus on solutions right well, thank you, brother. I always love you. I'm here for you. If I can ever do anything for you, I'm a phone call away. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. You're the man. Before I go, I wanted to talk about one more thing that's been on my mind, and that's giving some flowers to two black men who made history this week in New York Congressman Gregory Meeks and Georgia Congressman David Scott. Congressman Meeks was named to the chairmanship of House Foreign Affairs and Chairman Scott was named to lead the House Ag Committee. Why does this matter? Well, first, both the first blacks to lead these two committees, and we believe in giving folks their flowers here on the Bakari Sellers podcast. They join Maxine Waters, Bobby Scott, Benny Thompson, and Eddie Bernice Johnson as black committee chairs for the next Congress, a historic number where six of our House committees will be led by members of the CBC. Why does this matter? In the case of ag, the committee has historically focused on farming and less on federal food programs. But food insecurity is at an historic high in this question. So there's real value in having the ag committee, the committee with oversight of federal food policy, be led by someone like Scott, who was from rural South Carolina, attended and knows the value of land-grant HBCUs, has led on issues like food policy and food insecurity. And it was called out issues like discrimination against black and brown farmers. With Meeks, we have someone leading foreign affairs who will ensure that the policy or the focus of the committee and our foreign policy isn't just Europe, China, and Russia, but with a renewed focus on the African diaspora, including sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean. The Trump years were a nothing burger for both regions, and we begin to bring balance back to American foreign policy when the face of American foreign policy on the Hill is the Queens-based black congressman with roots in South Carolina and a history of responsible American policy toward the Caribbean in sub-Saharan Africa policy. These are historic developments that we want to celebrate here on the show, and these are developments that help move the culture and our country forward. Thank you for tuning in and joining another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We got some special stuff coming and you'll hear about it a lot. I can just tell you two numbers, four, four. We'll see you on Thursday. Okay.